You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Um, I'll do my best to preach this. Uh, I, I want to um, show you uh, the providence of God. That's kind of going to be the main theme of today's sermon. I think it's the main theme of, of the book of Esther. But I want to show you God's providence, uh, particularly um, in this chapter and in the, in the events that uh, Bethany just read to you. Um, we just finished up the month of June, and uh, the month of June has become known as Pride Month. Uh, we see rainbows everywhere, um, and members of the LGBT community use the month of June to highlight um, their uh, sexual orientation or um, gender, um, gender identity. And, um, and it, it's, it's become quite prevalent in our culture, um, to be proud of going against uh, God's plan for gender and God's plan for marriage. Um, now, we as God's people strive very intentionally um, to love people from all different walks of life. Um, no particular sin is any greater than any other sin. All sin separates us from God. And um, so even my own family, we've tried very hard to befriend uh, people who, uh, who are homosexual, and uh, we strive for that. But um, this particular sin, I think, in our culture and in, in a way that's unlike a lot of other sins that we see, um, is rooted in um, a sin called pride, um, even so much so that they've donned a month and called it Pride Month. And I want, to, I want you to see in today's scripture passage that um, the Lord abhors our pride. Amen? God's not pleased when you are prideful of any type of sin or fallenness or flaw or depravity in your soul. God's not pleased when you are proud of those things. Um, and what we see happen in this man Haman is that pride overtakes him. And, and even though he may not have lived in a culture um, that, that we find ourselves in um, that, that celebrates something called Pride Month, um, let me assure you in Persia that they were prideful people and they celebrated themselves very much. And maybe no one as much as Haman. Haman is uh, one of the most prideful characters in the Bible. And, um, and for Haman, truly, we're going to see that pride comes before his fall. Um, let me recap the book of Esther, the first five chapters up to this point. In chapter one, you see the queen of Persia removed from office. Her name's Vashti. Um, she's not mentioned again after chapter one. Esther is chosen in chapter two to be the new queen. Um, as we move forward, Mordecai refuses to bow to the second in command in the empire named Haman. Um, Haman is infuriated by this and sentences not just Mordecai to death, but convinces the king, Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, convinces him to sign an edict of genocide that would eliminate and execute every Jewish person in the Persian Empire. Um, then Mordecai goes to his adopted daughter, who's now the queen, Esther, and tells her, uh, maybe you've been appointed to such an office for such a time as this. Uh, you need to go to the king and uh, request of him that, that this edict be revoked. And so Esther plans a banquet with the king and with Haman. Uh, Pastor James preached about that last week to you. And we have this kind of climactic moment at that banquet where the king looks at Esther and he says, my queen, what is it you wish? And instead of saying, can you pardon all my people? She says, let's have one more feast. And, and so you're kind of left on this cliffhanger 
Uh, Jabe's kind of explored why she did that. I, I think it was probably a lot of hesitation in her heart, some fear, a lack of courage, but definitely some wisdom as she's uh, being cautious and moving slow, trusting in the plan of God. And so where we pick up in this passage in chapter six is in between the two banquets that happen in the book of Esther. Banquet number one, where she simply just requests another banquet, and banquet number two, where she will finally, and, and in a culmination of all these events, um, expose Haman's wicked plot to the king. Um, and so where, these events in chapter six happen on the night in between those two banquets. I've got three points for you. These points are meant to just kind of keep you keep your attention so you know how much longer the sermon's going to go and also let you know how we want you to apply this text to your life. Uh, number one, we're going to see providence in depraved minds, that even though people who don't honor the Lord, um, who don't try to seek the will of the Lord, God still works his plan through their minds. Secondly, we'll see pride in depraved hearts, that people who are far from God um, are rooted in the sin of pride. They, they are selfish. Uh, they want what's best for themselves. And I want you to see also that that pride rears its ugly head, even in those of us who have been redeemed. Um, our flesh struggles with that. And then thirdly and finally, we'll see a paradox in divine justice as God uh, carries out his justice. So let's look at point one, providence in depraved minds. Again, the, the major theme we see in Esther is providence or what we may refer to as God's sovereignty. Sovereignty refers to the supreme power of God, the authority of God to do what he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. Um, God is orchestrating the whole thing that, that in the largest empire on the earth at this time, God is in control of the events. Um, maybe more than any other book of the Bible, we see the most powerful king in the world being influenced by a sovereign creator. And that's the case not just with great kings of the land, but even simple folks like you and me. That God is influencing our lives and controlling the circumstances of our lives and the outcome of the things that we enter into. Now, most of us, if we're honest, don't like this. Amen? You don't have to say amen. I know it's true. We don't like to not be in control of things. I think especially Americans, we tend to pride ourselves on freedom. We do what we want, when we want, and how we want. We want to be sovereign. We don't want to submit to a sovereign ruler. Theologians wrestle with the idea of sovereignty, and they have for thousands of years. Things like the doctrine of predestination confuse us. And if things like that that just kind of blow your mind are true, then what does that do with prayer? And why do we spend time asking God for things if he's already predetermined what's going to happen? What does all of that mean? Um, I was talking to my boys uh, two nights ago. We were um, reading the Bible together, and they started asking me questions about heaven. And you know how when kids start to ask about heaven, you don't have all the answers. And in my pride, I want to say, pretend like I do. You know, I went to seminary. I should be a dad that can answer their questions. But uh, Tava was like, when I get to heaven, can I just speak and there be a dirt bike there? And I'm like, I, you know, I don't want to crush his dreams, but I'm like, I just don't know, buddy. And um, they're like, well, what's heaven going to be like? Is it going to be like earth? And I said, it's going to be like the most beautiful beach you've ever seen and the highest mountain you've ever climbed, but so much better than what you can imagine. I'm trying my best here. And they begin to ask, well, where did God come from? And I'm like, can you all just go to bed? Right? Like, I, I know what you're doing. Um, but, but I begin to tell them that God has always existed. And I see their, their wheels turning in their mind as they begin to try to imagine God always existing and having no beginning. And I just see their minds blowing. And, and that this is how we wrestle with the deep things of the Bible, like predestination, like prayer, like 
God's sovereignty and his providence. Um, a, an old uh, Presbyterian from the 19th century named Archibald Hodge, um, I've shared this with you all before, but he has this kind of uh, conversation with himself in some of his writings, uh, wrestling with these ideas. And he says, does God know when you will die? And you can answer this question if you know the answer. Does God know when you will die? Of course he does, right? He does. Has God appointed the day that you will die? I would say yes, that he does. And he says, can you do anything to change the date that you will die? No. Then why do you eat? To stay alive. So what happens if you don't eat? You die. So if you don't eat and you die, is that the day that God determined that you would die? And his conclusion is this, stop asking stupid questions and eat lunch. <laughs> uh, and, and this is kind of, you know, if we're, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in this like existential crisis and it bothers us to find ourselves in a story that we're not in control of. And what I want you to get from today's sermon is that you can find rest and comfort and trust in the fact that God is in control of your story more than you. That's a good thing. The point is that God has created us with a will. We have choice. He's created us with morality. He's created us with conscience. In his image means that, that we are creative, and it means that we have choices. But God moves within the means of his natural world to accomplish his end. Uh, Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas, calls it a cosmic take-your-kid-to-work day, that all of our mission and ministry is like a cosmic take-your-kid-to-work day. It's like God is bringing us along into his job, and every now and then he lets us push a button. Micah went to a, uh, a career in technology day camp this week you know, to learn to do all the things that I don't know how to do. He was learning electrical work and um, carpentry and you know, the stuff that I beg people in the church to do around this building because I don't know how to do it. And I, I had one of my proudest moments in my whole life is they were teaching the boys how to cut copper pipe. And they had a pipe cutter out. And uh, Micah said, I know how to work that thing. And he, he's showing them and, and demonstrating that he knows how to cut copper piping. And uh, they said, well, how do you know how to do this? And he said, my dad taught me. And it's like, it, it was just like a lucky roll of the dice that they were doing some kind of handy job that I had, uh, that I had been able to do. But, um, but if I were to get a pipe cutter and, and tell Micah, I'm going to let you cut some copper uh, water lines under the parsonage, um, he could have some freedom to kind of cut where he wants, right? But as a good father and a, a good uh, steward of that home, I'm not going to let him cut anywhere he wants. I'm going to make sure the water's turned off. I'm going to make sure we're cutting where there is a leak or a break, that we're cutting in the proper place. And he's going to have some freedom to actually do the thing, but I'm going to make sure that it's within my plan. And it's the same with God. God is going to give us some movement and some freedom, but ultimately we're only going to be able to move within the bounds of what his plan is okay with and his sovereignty. And this is what we see happening in Esther. God is moving, but he's moving in ordinary means. Now, does God move outside of ordinary means? Of course he does. You can read through the Bible and you can see the parting of the Red Sea. You can see a battle where the sun stands still so that God's people can fight longer and win the battle. You can see supernatural plagues fall upon Pharaoh in Egypt. But what do you see in Esther? How does God move in Esther? A guy with a full belly and insomnia. It's a very normal thing, right? I experience it every Friday night. And, and this is how God's going to choose to save his people through a man who's stuffed his belly full and can't fall asleep. Jabe shared this 
verse with us last week. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that whether you like the president or not, his heart is like a stream of water? Now, a lot of us will, in our hearts, say amen to that, but I would submit to you it's also good news that your heart is also like a stream of water, and God will turn it wherever he will. Now, it could have been Esther's cooking that kept uh, Ahasuerus up all night. Sure, that could have been the case, but Scripture makes it clear that narrative situations, um, as the Bible tells stories, they're not outside of God's control. And think about that. What that means for you is that nothing in your life has happened outside of God's control or allowance. Nothing. Does that make us uncomfortable? Of course it does. There are things that happen. We experience grief and loss and death, pain, heartache, that we question and we say, God, why would you allow something like this? Of course it makes us uncomfortable. Do we always have to like God's plan? No, we don't. But should we trust it? Yes, we should, because he's a good king. And we've all been there place of insomnia, amen, where you can't fall asleep. I don't know about you, but TikTok has become my new bedtime uh, sleep activity. And if you scroll on TikTok, let me just tell you, it's better than television um, because, because I, I tell myself I can quit watching whenever I want. But it's like, well, they're only 60 seconds long, so you go to the next one, you go to the next one. If you scroll long enough on TikTok, I've discovered this. There's a little guy that pops up on there and he says, hey, this app will be here tomorrow. Why don't you take some time off? And that, let me tell you, I have an existential crisis when that comes up. It's like, I'm the worst human. I need to go to sleep. And the king didn't have TikTok. He didn't have Netflix, you know, where you stream, you binge watch something, it pops up. Are you still there? Are you still watching? And so he does the next best thing that he has available to him. He requests the book of the Chronicles, uh, which means the historical records. Now, you talk about something that's a snooze fest. All right, bring me the historical records of the kingdom. Listening to this book would have been the equivalent of watching golf on a Sunday afternoon. It just puts you right to sleep, okay? Or NASCAR, depending on your flavor. Sorry, Baker, but it puts me to sleep. They just drive in circles. Lulls me off to la-la land. But God's providence leads this scribe as he brings this book to put the king to sleep to open to the exact page that God would see fit with Mordecai's name on it. You know, when I was a kid, I used to randomly open the Bible to a Bible verse to find some encouragement. Y'all ever do that? Am I the only one? Um, I'd just be like, Lord, I need you today. You know, I was like going through something. You know, I had a fight with my friend in middle school or whatever. So I was like really down in the dumps. Like, Jesus, I need you now. You know, I was really dramatic. And I'd open the Bible and be like, I'm looking for hope. I open the Bible and it'd be like one of the imprecatory Psalms that says, I have a painful disease in my loins. You know, that's like, it didn't work for me. I'm like, ah, Holy Spirit, I thought you were going to do it for me there. Um, and, and, you know, we really shouldn't look for that mysticism, but in God's sovereignty, he makes sure that the scribe just kind of randomly opening the book probably to read, to put the king to sleep, opens to the page with the record of Mordecai um, that we see in chapter two. Uh, Mordecai, this had been five years prior, um, unveiling a plot to assassinate the king. And it is, comes to the, the realization of the king that he was thankful for it, and he kind of remembers it, but nothing had been done to appreciate or honor or thank Mordecai. Now, Ahasuerus is ironically terrible at making decisions on his own. 
So he's supposed to be going to sleep. It's probably early in the morning, maybe 3, 4, 5 a.m. in the morning because Haman is walking in. He got up super early so he could come ask the king for something, suck up like he always does. And so it's super early in the morning. And Ahasuerus says, I've got I've to do something to honor this guy, Mordecai, who saved my life five years ago. I completely forgot to do that. I didn't put it on my to-do list. And since he can't make decisions on his own, he asks who's in the court and guess who had just walked in? Haman, verse 4. King said, who's in the court? Haman had just entered the court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Do you see the coincidences? God is orchestrating the whole plan. God's working it out in his way with his providence. And if, if his providence can work this situation out, then you also ought to trust his providence. You ever done something and it not go the way that you want? Or maybe you did something good and you feel like you haven't been rewarded the way you want. It had been five years since Mordecai had done this thing. He didn't particularly love the king. He just tried to do what was right and he was not rewarded or honored for it. And five years passed. You think he ever got bitter about it? And those politicians up there in that palace, they don't even, they don't even care about me. They don't remember that I saved their lives. You see, when you don't get the results you want, maybe God is planning for the results that you need. Because we, like, we think that we've got the plan figured out and we've got the best stuff. And when we do something that we think is in God's plan, we yearn and want that result that we think is best. But maybe, just maybe, God is planning for the results that you need, not just what you want. I hope you see the providence here in Esther. That even in these people far from God, they are carrying out God's plan. I hope you see the providence for your life as well. Let me go to point two, which is pride in depraved hearts. Now, again, God is not pleased with pride, but he will use Haman's pride in his own plan. Pride is one of the most communal sins. We all struggle with it, and we see it on full display in Haman. And if, we're, uh, if we look closely enough, I think we'll all see a little bit of Haman in ourselves. Verse 6, Haman comes in to the king and said, um, and the king says to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And I love what Haman says to himself. He says to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Of course, there's no one in this empire that the king would love to honor more than me, the man, Haman. And so he begins to make all his kind of Santa Claus requests to the king. Everything he's ever wanted, here's how you really honor someone. So let's look at that in verse 7. Haman says to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now Haman obviously thinks that he's the one that's getting honor and so he describes his dream day, which kind of culminates with a parade. Um, last week on the 4th of July, I went to the Hamlin 4th of July parade and may I submit to you, there is no more glorious Independence Day celebration than the parade in my hometown. Um, now we do pretty good here in Milton, but there's just nothing more redneck glorious than Hamlin and people riding their tractors and whatnot through uh, Route 3. And, um, and Haman is describing this parade that he wants to be in where he's wearing these royal robes, riding the king's best horse, 
everyone praising him, bowing down to him. But little does he know he's describing exactly what will be given instead to Mordecai. There's this great reversal that's going to lead to embarrassment. Um, you guys remember the uh, Miss Universe pageant of 2015? I remember every Miss Universe pageant. Um, I just take good notes of the Miss Universe pageant. So let me refresh your memory a little bit. It was hosted by a guy named Steve Harvey. And um, you remember it now? He comes on stage and he says, Miss Universe 2015 is Miss Columbia. And the orchestra strikes up and they crown her and everything. And then, you know, in classic family feud fashion, he comes back in with his, you know, his face. And, uh, and he says, I have to apologize uh, Miss Philippines is actually Miss Universe. He read the card wrong, and and it, it was just like it was like cringy to watch because they they literally had to take the crown off Miss Columbia and put it on the confused Miss Philippines, and 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 the, just the embarrassment of like you're on national television and there's a big crowd there and everything, and and I think that 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 was probably just a small slice of what Haman felt when he realized that the beautiful dream day that he had described is actually going to be given to Mordecai instead. And he realizes it in verse 10. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I love that he says, don't leave out anything that you've mentioned. Your plan is great. Now do it for Mordecai the Jew. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. You see, Haman actually ends up leading the horse that Mordecai sits upon. And the principle here is clear and it's echoed throughout scripture, is that those who pridefully desire honor will not receive it, and instead they will be humiliated. But those who humble themselves May not be in the time frame that we want, but those of us who humble ourselves will ultimately be exalted and honored. First Peter 5, 5 tells us, likewise, you are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud. I want you to remember this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter uses the word oppose in the New Testament. He opposes the, the proud. It's a strong word that he chooses to use. Its, its root word is a Greek word, tasso, which means to be tightly joined together in a relationship. Um, tasso can, can even describe an addiction. That's what the word tasso means. And Peter doesn't use that, but instead he uses the word anti-tasso. It's the complete opposite of an addiction or a close tethering or a relationship, but rather it's that God is repulsed by the prideful. When we are prideful in and of ourselves, we are repulsive to a holy God. Any sense of your salvation being earned by you has no place in Jesus's kingdom. Any sense of kind of earned status within the church or tenure or we've arrived by our own status or by our own skill set is repulsive to God. It's garbage and it does not belong in Jesus' church. You see, the Christian life is all of grace. It's a continual realization that none of us deserve to be in the position we're in. So if our king asks us about honor, our king, not Ahasuerus or Xerxes, but our king, Jesus, if he asks us about honor, we don't respond like Haman. 
well, here's what I'd like to be in the church, or here's the ministry I'd like to have in your kingdom, Lord, but rather we cast our crowns at his feet. That's what the Bible describes us as doing. And we live in this paradox, which is the final point, the paradox that we see of divine justice. Imagine traveling to an unknown land, and when you get there, everything's upside down. You go in buildings, and people are walking on the ceilings. It's just weird to you. You're the only one on the ground. But the longer you're there, you begin to realize that where you come from was actually upside down, and these people have it right. That's the idea that we see of God's kingdom invading a fallen world, is that we look at God's kingdom initially as depraved sinners, and we think that it's backwards. We think that it does not make sense. It's illogical. It's upside down. But the longer that we're in Jesus' kingdom, we begin to realize that it's our fallen and cursed world that's actually upside down. God's kingdom is right side up. And God is reorienting our world to the right place, this fallen, cursed world into the way that it ought to be. You see, the gospel kingdom that we belong to is built on paradoxical justice. What seems backward to us is right with God. This great irony is how God reorients this fallen world. He says, hey, you want to be honored? The way to do that is to honor others. Romans 12 tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. He says, you want to be first? Get in the back of the line. Jesus teaches on this. The way to be first in his kingdom is not to be first. The way to be first is to be last. No matter what Ricky Bobby tells you, if you ain't first, you're last, or whatever his saying is, Jesus says that if you are last, you are first. You want a seat of honor? Jesus says take the servant's seat. You want to be the greatest of all? Jesus says serve all. You want eternal life? Jesus says die to yourself. When we hear these things, they don't make sense to us in our flesh. I wonder if when Jesus came, or, or when people listened to Jesus' sermons, if it sounded like Willy Wonka preaching to him. None of this makes sense. This sounds silly to us. Why is it this way? Because in eternity, no one will receive any credit for redemption except God alone. And you need to get yourself to a place where you're okay with that. That God alone receiving the glory is not just something you're okay with, but it's something you deeply desire with your entire soul. And in Esther here, we find ourselves at a pivotal point in the narrative, this kind of domino effect that takes place for the rest of the book. In the saving of Jews in Persia, no one will receive credit for that except God. And God writes this story in a way that only he could receive the credit for it. Now, we tend to look at this book and make a hero out of Esther after all the books named after her. Some of us maybe even make a hero out of Mordecai. He's a pretty prominent protagonist in the story. But what are these heroes of the narrative doing at the time that this domino effect starts? They're sleeping. They're doing absolutely nothing, and God is accomplishing his will. Esther and Mordecai are fast asleep, as through natural means, God orchestrates the circumstances to make sure that the king can't sleep, that he remembers Mordecai, that he honors Mordecai, that Haman leads the horse, that Haman is ultimately going to get infuriated and then be whisked away into the second banquet, and ultimately that in his anger it will be revealed that he is the one with this plot to uh, c commit genocide against the Jews, which will ultimately lead to Esther outing him, which will lead to Haman's execution, which will lead to the Jewish people being successful over their enemies and not being eliminated. You see, the active party of this book is God, not the people. The active party is the unseen king, Jesus. 
There's a biblical scholar named Karen Jobes, and she specialized her career and her work in studying um, the Hebrew scriptures, but the Greek interpretations and translations of them, namely what's called the Septuagint, a translation that existed when Jesus walked the earth. And Karen Jobes, who's this uh, scholar of the Septuagint um, about the book of Esther, uh, writes this. I thought this was interesting. Um, Karen says, the characters of the story are not spotlighted as the cause of the reversal. This reinforces the message that no one in the story, not even the most powerful person in the empire, is in control of what is about to happen. An unseen power is controlling the reversal of destiny. The Greek translation makes this implicit truth explicit with the statement, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. First century Jews, when they translated this passage, translated it as saying, the Lord took sleep away from the king. And the Lord himself was the active agent in all of this. And Haman begins to spiral out of control once he realizes that he's not in control. Now, as you look into this, I hope you see a little, at least a little bit of Haman in your own heart because it exists, I promise you. But I want you to be careful that this understanding of God's sovereignty doesn't make you spiral out of control. Imagine, if you will, a, a flight that experiences turbulence. A lot of us have been on airplanes and we feel those kind of bumpy country roads in the air. Um, I'm flying to Colorado tomorrow, first time flying in a long time. And, um, and as, as we experience that, there's like, there's like two types of people if you're on a really turbulent flight. There's the people that are like super calm and they're like drinking tomato juice um, and they're like making jokes with the flight attendants. And there's the people like clutching rosaries and crossing themselves, right? Um, I don't know which one you are. Um, but, but the irony is the same fact motivates both reactions. To the person that's extremely anxious at, about the turbulence, they're anxious because they are not in control. They can't get off the plane. They can't land the plane. They can't do anything to save themselves. But the person that's sipping tomato juice, they're calm because of the same fact. I'm the guy sipping tomato juice. I'm, I don't know how to fly a plane. I don't have a parachute. There's nothing I can do about this. I might as well enjoy the ride. The Lord is in control of the circumstances of your life, and when it feels the bumpiest, the lost will get anxious, but the saved will trust in the plan. So the characters of this book are along for the ride, and the ride is the paradoxical divine justice of God. Verse 12 says, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. He's, in, he's in humiliated, embarrassed. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and his friends, uh, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, they give this little prophecy over him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. There's this reversal that takes place in the book of Esther, and we begin to see it in chapter 6. This reversal um, is actually a substitution, that from pagan lips, these wise men and um, Haman's wife come God's truth, this prophecy that will be fulfilled. Haman was not honored, but rather Mordecai was substituted into his honor. Now, Mordecai will not be executed. Spoiler alert. He will not be killed, but rather Haman will be substituted into that death and he will be executed on the very gallows that he constructed for Mordecai. And this points us to divine justice that theologians call substitutionary atonement. That though we deserve death, Jesus is the one who actually received death for us. 
No, the only thing that we deserve is the wrath of God. The wrath of God has not been poured out on his children, but rather it was poured out on Jesus in our place. And though we are not righteous in and of ourselves, the Bible tells us our righteousness is like a filthy rag in God's sight. Though we have no righteousness in our own souls, we have been given the righteousness of Jesus. And his perfection, when he goes and takes our punishment on the cross, there's a great exchange that takes place and he gives us his perfection. So that when God looks at us, even though we're not perfect, he sees us as perfect. Child of God, that means that there's nothing left for you to do. That's not to say we do nothing. Let me put it this way. In the mission of God, we do all we can and we let him do all we can't. Look at me and, and, and hear this very clearly. Your salvation is secure and it is finished if you have repented and trusted in Jesus. There's nothing left for you to do. And that should cause you to do a lot for God's glory. Not in a way to get yourself to heaven, but because you serve a good and a gracious king. And then let's read the last verse and I'll finish. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. They show up, Haman's in disarray. He knows the end is near. And they say, Haman, you've got a, you've got a dinner to go to. Let's roll. And he will not return to his wife. He'll not return to see his friends. He'll go to this dinner and his fate awaits him. We're invited to a table that we come to every week. We call it communion or the Lord's table. And at our table, we don't find our own death like Haman. We don't find wrath and judgment like Haman finds at the dinner that he's going to. Rather, we find the death of another. We find wrath poured out on another, poured out on the unseen king of the story of Esther. His name's Jesus. He went to a cross. He allowed himself to be murdered on your behalf, suffocating on a cross, bleeding out on a cross, extreme torture, and as he breathes his last, he has us on his mind as he saves us out of our sin and adopts us into his kingdom. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.